everybody. This month, I'm asking for your support on Patreon. So if you haven't had a chance yet um, to listen to my first episode of the year, go ahead and take a listen to that. And I explain a little bit more about why I am so passionate about Patreon. And one of the experiences that I had this past December with some of my patrons, where we had a one hour Zoom call, we were able to chat about everything and anything they wanted to talk to me about. And it was an amazing experience, I think for them, but certainly for me as well. So please head on over to Patreon and help support the show. You can give any amount, five, 10, $20. You can give less than that, but any little bit helps in supporting life, death, and the space between. Also make sure you're following me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. And if you are interested in receiving my newsletter, which has biweekly soul wisdoms, please head on over to dramyrobbins.com and subscribe to my newsletter. Lastly, I'm still taking ghost stories for this year. So if you have a ghost story to share, please send that to team at dramyrobbins.com and I will be excited to share it on my show. Today is part two of my two-part podcast with Mark Epstein, Dr. Mark Epstein, who is a psychologist and Buddhist teacher. I can promise you, you will continue to be enlightened by this conversation. It was amazing. And there are some really juicy tidbits at the end that you can take with you and and use today to apply in your life. So uh, go ahead and enjoy the rest of my podcast with Dr. Mark Epstein. And you talk about... um, the division between real life and meditation is artificial. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you talk about what you mean by that? Um, Well, the division between uh, meditation and real life is artificial. Uh, um, (laughs) A, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, who's a psychologist in Boston named Jack Angler. He had um, some of the same teachers, uh, Buddhist teachers that I've, that I've had. And he tells a great story about, traveling all the way to India, to the village in northern India, Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha was enlightened, where a Bengali teacher, uh, whose name was uh, Manindra, who was Joseph Goldstein, if you, if you know who Joseph Goldstein is, he's one of the premier Vipassana teachers, insight meditation teachers in America. Um, uh, Joseph's teacher was this man, Manindra, uh, who what, had like an encyclopedic knowledge of Buddhist psychology and was a great meditation teacher. So Jack Engler, uh, my friend, got a Fulbright grant, went, you know, went, went uh, uh, all the way to Bodh Gaya, got there, went to Manindra's little cottage, sat down, said, uh, uh, Manindra, I'm ready to learn to meditate. And Manindra wouldn't teach him. He just took him to the marketplace. Uh, he asked him how his bowels were now that he had come to India. He showed him what to buy in the market, this uh, a fleecy seed that if you mixed it with water, it was good for um, uh, uh, diarrhea. If you mixed it with water, it was good for constipation. If you mixed it with milk, it was good for diarrhea. Uh, he did this for like two weeks. He wouldn't teach Jack to meditate. Finally, Jack said to him, uh, you know, got frustrated. Uh, a little angry, maybe. And he's like, Manindra, when are you going to teach me to meditate? And Manindra said, oh, you, you want to learn the Dharma? You, you know, the, the Dharma is like the short, shorthand for the Buddha's psychology. He said, the Dharma means living the life fully. Mm. The Dharma means living the life fully. So that was like, 
you know, big lesson that Jack didn't quite understand at the moment, but wrote down and brought back and, and, you know, has written about and talked about, but so, so what is he saying? What's Meninter saying, you know, that we, we set meditation up as like this thing that's apart from life, you know, that's going to, uh, you know, hypothetically enlighten us or awaken us to what end what's the why are we doing all of this you know um why are we why do we even feel the need because we're not living our lives fully you know Mm -hmm. how are we not living our lives fully that's the question for therapy Mm -hmm. i think why people come to therapy because they have that sense of some you know they're living a uh a superficial aspect, uh, you know, of their of their own lives. So, how can we help deepen or open people to themselves? Can you speak a little bit to the the three um, components of an insight meditation and and what they help us, how they help us? Yeah, sure. Well, um, we we talked about TM already mm-hmm. uh, and the relaxation response. So, though those meditations uh, are that classically called uh, concentration practices or one-pointedness practices, where, as we said before, when the mind wanders, you notice that it's wandering and you bring it back to the central the mantra or the sensation of the breath, et cetera. Um, and that, those concentration practices are very useful, very important to kind of steady the mind, uh, to quiet it enough so that the observing mind, which is really what we're cultivating in meditation, because as human beings, we have this strange capacity, you know, we're both the thinker, but we're able to notice the thoughts, you you know, we have a kind of reflective double capacity, you you know, to be both subject and object to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So um, in psychoanalysis, they talk about that as uh, creating a therapeutic split in the ego, you you know, so you you have your dreams, but you can look at your dreams. You have your emotions, but you can feel your emotions. So uh, insight meditation is, is uh, making use of that quality. So uh, the concentration practices are a kind of beginning thing. Um, but then you want to turn your attention on the entire range of your experience so the distractions, instead of being distractions, become objects of meditation. So a thought arises, and instead of, oh, I'm thinking I should come back to the mantra, you know, you let your observing awareness go to the thought. A bird makes a noise out the window, you know, the refrigerator comes on, you let the sounds be objects of your meditation, mm-hmm. your, your back starts to hurt, or your um, heart starts to race, uh, you, you let those physical sensations become objects of meditation. You have a memory of like when you were a little boy or a little girl and and uh, your friend uh, turned on you and you still feel the pain of that and somehow that comes up. You let those feelings or those memories become the objects of meditation. So that's much more mindfulness. And um, uh, the people who like to make lists, uh, you know, and, and divide things up, they talk about the concentration practices on the one side, the mindfulness practices on, on the other side. But the two are like two horses that are drawing a carriage, you know. So we, we use both of them in, uh, in, 
in most Buddhist practices, Buddhist meditation practices. And then um, once you get used to treating your uh, experience in this way, then the next stages of practice are called the insight uh, uh, stages. Uh, now, insight means that you're starting to examine uh, uh, what we call the self, you, you know, like what is the self? Who? But that's too abstract. So it's really like, who am I? You know, and who do I think I am? And how do I know who I am? So this is all, This people get very uh, uh, confused about this. I certainly was never sure about who I was. Uh, and they're like, where am I? You know, and you, <laughs> like, you look like more of a person than I feel like I am, you know, so I want to be like you, but I, how can I, you know? So the, the Buddhist insight practices are like, oh yeah, everybody feels this way. So why don't you just like relax and pay attention to how you really do know yourself you know what do you when do you feel like yourself and what is that feeling like you know and can you make that the object of meditation mm -hmm. so and sometimes they talk about that's like a dog chasing its own tail you, you know because you, you like what you think you found the self but then you can't find the self and so you're you, you know and you get a little dizzy uh chasing your own self chasing your own tail and uh, the the buddhist teachers like that dizziness because that when you get a little dizzy and you're not quite sure who you are anymore, then there's a, a uh, there's some openings that can happen. There's actually a, a set, some kind of freedom from the known self or from the demands of the ego, uh, and so things start to uh, unravel a little bit. So would that, in some way, be the dissolution of ego? Um, well, it's too easy to say that the ego dissolves because it never really dissolves, but because uh, we all need our egos and it, right. it comes right back. But it's um, I, I see it more as uh, um, realizing the uh, uh, fragility of the ego or the transparency of the ego or the um, relativity of the ego. Like, like the ego isn't everything mm -hmm. and we don't have to only be our egos. Mm -hmm. And so the, the ego has a, a function, you know, like when we have to make lists or, or when we uh, uh, have to make dinner or get the kids up and out or ourselves up and out or be here at the right time. That's all ego function, mm -hmm. you, you know, but do we only have to be like, oh, God, what's the next thing that I'm going to do? And, and, you know, no, we don't only have to be that. So the ego has its place, but we can learn to put it down. And that's a lot what we're doing in these practices is we're, we're seeing the ego rise up like it wants to make the lists, you know, and then we're like, OK, I already made that list. Mm -hmm. so let's like put the ego back down. It can it can take a rest. You, you know, mm -hmm. and that, you know, I wrote this book, uh, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, and, and that's sort of like letting the ego take a rest. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to be integrated all the time. That doesn't mean that we are disintegrated, but we can be right. un, unintegrated. Uh -huh. So what does it mean to be unintegrated, you know? Um, and what, I have a couple more questions. Um, I actually have a lot more questions, but only a couple more we're gonna cover today. What would what is the Buddhist view on loss? You talk about this a little bit at the end of the book. Yeah. Well, is there a Buddhist view 
uh, on loss? I, I, probably not. It probably depends on which which Buddhist you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had a beautiful beautiful teaching about that when uh, I was in my twenties and traveling in Asia with uh, uh, Jack Cornfield, who's another uh, mindfulness uh, of a Vipassana teacher of mine. I, I went with him and some other friends to. Uh, the Thai monastery on the Lao border where Jack had been a monk for two years to meet with his teacher, who was a Thai forest meditation master named Ajahn Chah. And um, uh, he welcomed us in and gave us lunch. And then we sat and, and had a like Q&A with him. And we manufactured some kind of question to ask him that I can't remember anymore. But he um, the, the answer he gave was about I think to me anyway, was about loss. And his answer was something like this. He picked up the drinking glass that was next to him. And he said, uh, do, do you see this glass? I love this glass. It holds my water admirably. When the sun shines on it, it reflects the light beautifully, makes beautiful patterns. Uh, um, when I uh, uh, click on it, it makes a beautiful sound. It has a beautiful ring. But when... Uh, the wind blows and the glass falls off the shelf and breaks, or when my elbow hits it and it falls and breaks, I say to myself, of course. But because for me, he said, this glass is already broken. But when I know that the glass is already broken, he continued, every minute with it is precious. Mm, Wow. So it's that last part, like the the glass is already broken. That's, you know, okay, Buddhism, suffering, like, you know, everything's impermanent, don't get attached. Um, he wasn't saying that, you, you know, every minute with it is precious. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I think being a, knowing that loss is inevitable, we are all gonna, you know, if you fall in love, one of you is destined to lose the other, you know, like the old age, illness and death, separation and loss. It's a, like, that's a reality mm-hmm. for all of us. Mm-hmm. Now with COVID, we're experiencing it as, you know, in, in one moment, everyone together, but that's not usually how it is. Right. Um, but uh, so in my book, I tell a couple of stories of patients who uh, have lost the people that they're close to uh, and uh feeling that the Buddhist view should be, oh, I shouldn't be suffering, I shouldn't be grieving, you know, or, or I'm not grieving right, because it's not, I'm not doing it in the five stages of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and whatnot. But um, uh, I think the trick is to let yourself grieve the way you grieve, which you can't know until you're grieving, mm-hmm. until you've really lost someone. And then it's a, it's a, it's a surprise, it's not a formula. And we can use what we've learned from meditation and therapy from mindfulness, you know, making room for everything to not have an agenda for grief and to uh, appreciate that grief is the other side of love uh, and uh, that um, uh, uh, every minute, even every minute of grief is precious. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a contemplative practice. I mean, I feel like in some ways I do this every day as I think about, okay, if these the people inside the four walls of this house, if something were to happen with to them and others as well, but mainly, you know, those 
that I feel like I love the deepest. Um, <clears throat> am I am I good with how I conducted myself today? Am I good with what I said and how I was with them? And sometimes the answer is no. Um, but and then it's like, okay, well, what can I do to fix that? But I, I think often people don't love as completely as they're capable because they're scared of loss, they're mm-hmm. scared of death. Mm-hmm. Freud wrote a beautiful little paper uh, called On Transience that's about three pages long, where he, he writes about taking a hike uh, in the Swiss Alps in the summer with a poet friend who's said to be Rilke. He doesn't name him as Rilke. But the, uh, the poet friend isn't able to open to the beauty around him because he knows that it's all transient. So he's like melancholy, well, you know, on the hike. And Freud ends the paper by saying, is a flower that blooms for a single night any less beautiful? Mm-hmm. You know, which is sort of like Ajahn Chah with the, you know, every minute with it is precious. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think people who are scared about death uh, and who are seeing loss around every corner, it tends to tighten them up. Mm-hmm. And so and so then they're like, they're um, uh, hypervigilant and overprotective of the those that they love. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a kind of interfering love, you know, that that Winnicott would talk about as, mm-hmm. you know, not quite optimal, because then the the object of the love has to like guard against that interference. Right. And so it creates division, you know. Okay, so you were friendly acquaintances with Ram Das. Mm-hmm. I just interviewed Ramesh. Oh. And so these are going to back up together, these podcasts. But one of your patients also was, um, I guess, worked closely with Ram Das and yeah, knew him for a, for a long time. Yeah. And he brought to you this concept of well, I don't, he told you that Ram Dass shared this with him. Love your thoughts and see yourself as a soul. And this is also in the book, um, being Ram Dass. In the end of his life, you went to visit him and you really beautifully illustrated this notion of seeing souls and then like quickly being back in ego. Can you talk to us about what that's like? Because it was really human. And I, and I appreciated that about his book, uh, and how human he was, even though he was on this spiritual path, and how human you are in your books. Um, sure, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to try. Um, you, you know, I knew Ramdas when I was uh, twenty years old. I first met him, so I think to him I was always about twenty years old, even though. And then I would see him every decade or two. So we had a nice connection. He had many, many friends who he was much closer to than he was to me, but we had a nice connection in it and it lasted for, um, you know, uh, almost 50 years. Um, so, and the thing about Ram Dass, when, when uh, he was in his prime, he was like a stand-up comic, you know, you know he was so funny and he could, we he could tell these stories and, uh, uh, bring spiritual principles alive by uh, using his humor. Uh, But there was always a little bit of the performer in him, you know, so that who he was, who he was in his uh, Richard Alpert, which was his given name, Mm -hmm. in his Richard Alpert self, and then who he was in his Ramdas self, they weren't quite aligned, you know. Um, But um, uh, he had a stroke, uh, 25 years before he died that took his voice away. 
he had an aphasia, so he couldn't find the words that he could still think fine. But uh, so he lost his golden tongue, and uh, and he was partially paralyzed. So and he was in pain, a lot of pain. Um, but somehow, in the the next decades, he became he narrowed that division between the Richard Alpert self and the Ramdas self so that he actually became the person that he was always pretending to be, uh, you know? So he never complained. And uh, even though he was really physically suffering and he continued to just put out a beautiful uh, vibration, uh, you know, to a, a lot of love to all the people who were around him and people were really drawn to him because of that. Um, and he helped, you know, he was like a therapist, spiritual therapist to so many people. But so anyway, I went to see him the, the, the year or two before he died, because Jack Hornfield, who I mentioned, said to me, you better go because he really <laughs> has become, uh, you know, his, his energy is really important to be around. And I was kind of tentative, would he remember me and whatnot. But I went and stayed in his guest room. And um, uh, uh, every Monday, the people around Ramdas would take him swimming in the ocean in Hawaii, uh, off a particular beach in Maui. And they would uh, put him in like a wheelbarrow because he was partially paralyzed and uh, put uh, flotation devices on him and wheel him uh, into the ocean. And in the ocean, his body was, you know, was buoyant. He could float. He was uh, like totally happy. And all these people, you know, Maui, retired Maui people, retired LSD people, Maui hippies, you know, like 20 people or so would come in and uh, all of a sudden swim with, with, with Ramdas in the water. He did this every week. Uh, so I went once uh, during my visit and uh, I was in the water with him. And it was before COVID, before this idea of creating pods, you know, was part of the vernacular. Ramdas paddles over to me and whispers to me, we're like a pod of souls, mm. you know, and, uh, uh, and, and, and we were like whales, you know, like, and then everyone, everyone starts um, chanting together or it's actually singing nursery rhymes where row, row, row your boat gently down the stream and we're all we're all um, floating in the water together. And then Ramdas paddles over to me again and points out this one guy over there. And he, he whispers to me, that guy's a, a retired dentist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like he's like the joke of like, you know, he's a dentist. Mm -hmm. He had a great sense of humor, Ramdas. And um, uh, I tried to write the, uh, this in the book and in, in as uh, moving away as it felt to me because it was really a sense of like the, you know, the oceanic feeling and this pot of souls, like all singing these nursery rhymes in the water, the sun and the ocean and, you know, really all. And one, the playfulness, you know, like the, the childhood, like the humor, joy yeah. that just yes. is, is when you look at kids, it's like so soulful. Yes. And Ramdas so happy, you know, cause he, cause you're aware of him suffering, but he was just beaming, beaming, beaming. So, uh, so that all happened. And then finally everyone go, gets back on land and uh, Ramdas says he's taking everybody out to lunch, uh, which is at a Thai restaurant in a strip mall. And <laughs> uh, uh, so there's 20 people, you know, uh, sitting at this, at this table and, and suddenly everyone's back in their egos, back in their bodies, back in their egos. And the waitress comes and, and uh, she's getting the iced tea orders and everyone, some people want, uh, you know, 
iced iced tea with no milk and no, some people want it with no sugar and some people Splenda and one person wants everyone to turn their cell phones off because of the uh, electromagnetic uh, radiation. And, uh, and I'm getting judgmental about everybody. You know, so this, <laughs> uh, this like transcendent experience is now reduced to uh, mm. like a regular, regular old uh, lunchtime thing. But, but Ramdas was, he was sitting across from me and he was just like the same, you know, just like happily eating his food. And he looked up at me once to let me know that everything was okay, you know, mm-hmm. that, that real life and the ocean didn't have to be two separate things, mm-hmm. you know, so. How do we get to that place? I think I would have been right with you at the table. <laughs> Well, even being in that place was in that place, you know, mm-hmm. like that's that that was really the, the like you can't stop your mind. You can't stop your ego, but you don't have to buy into it totally. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's, I think, the best that we can do. Mm-hmm. And when and that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can I ask you a couple? I do this little fun speed round thing at the end. Can I ask sure. you some fun speed round questions? You can try. Okay. Um, spirituality means uh, um, uh, that you're not who you think you are. What is something most people don't know about you? I, I like sports. What is one thing you are really looking forward to right now? Uh, the Super Bowl. <laughs> Even with those two teams playing in it, huh? Come on. I know. What a, what a uh, series we've had. These playoffs have been unbelievable. What is one thing you are deeply grateful for right now? Uh, my wife. What book is on your nightstand right now? Uh, the the uh, thousand-page uh, biography of Sylvia Plath. By, what is he- by, by Heather Clark. Hmm. What is your favorite spiritual or healing practice? <laughs> uh, Iyengar yoga. And what is the most transformative experience of your life? Uh, falling in love. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time today. I have more questions, but I don't want to take up more than invite an hour me back. I would, I would love to have you back. Okay. Um, the Zen of Therapy is out now. It is beautiful. It is. I mean, I can't say enough good things about it. I, as everybody knows who listens to the podcast, I try to get through every single book. I read this cover to cover. You can see my notes um, as proof. And it was just really a great read. It was also just in the New York Times, I believe, right? Just last week. Um, to great reviews as well. So thank you so much, Mark. Where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about your work? Do you have, do you have openings right now? Um, the therapy. I have a web. They can find they can find my website, um, which is markepsteinmd.com, I think. And I and I have a Facebook page um, that usually lists all the um, uh, you know talks or or whatever if I'm doing anything. So those those are really the best ways. Isn't that the million dollar question right now? Don't you feel like that's the question that everybody's what, what, asking? What's do you the have, question? Do you have openings? Oh, no, everyone is not asking that question. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I no, feel like a trickle, a trickle of people. I feel like I'm getting a lot question. of, do you have openings? Can you refer me to people for openings? Yeah. Who yeah. who can I? Yeah, no, it's hard for me to take on any new people right now. I, I bet. I feel, you know, responsible to the people that I'm that I'm still working with, but. 
Well, thank you so much for your time today. And um, I would love to have you back if you would come. Okay. Well, it's so nice to meet you. You too. I I really appreciate that you read the book and and thought about the questions and everything. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between. <laughs>